Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the novel Missionaries. Our special guest today, the poet Tom Slay teaches at the Master of Fine Arts program at Hunter College and has published so many fine works of poetry, it would require a whole episode just to go through them. And me, the knocker over of piles of parades despair, Jacob Siegel, may you continue to be a person. (laughs) Oh, I... I, uh, I know, Phil, that you have a, a special relationship to Tom. By the way, I, I, that is that is stolen valor as far as this podcast is concerned, because I personally at Officer Candidate School am personally responsible for my platoon losing the drill competition. So if there is any parades to spare. In this, yeah, that's uh, pretty bad. All right. Yeah. I'll hand it over to you. <laughs> but yeah. listen, I, you've been telling me about Tom for a long time. Tom is a, a kind of... Uh, almost mythic figure in these parts so tom is the um, is the the mad scientist who created me in a lab right um yeah so lay it tom, on us tell, before, tell the audience before I, I i i knew tom you know i was an undergrad and and um when i was you know going off into the marine corps he was like all right phil like you, you need to read you know if you're gonna go to war you need to read some of the best minds that have ever written about war so he had me read really useful stuff like Celine, you know, so that uh, when I was in Iraq, I'd be like, I know what to do. <laughs> I've read Journey to the End of the Night. Uh, you know, he had me read Isaac Babel, Celine, Hemingway short stories, um, uh, War and Peace. I mean, you know, uh, just an incredible range of, of uh, some of the greatest war literature. I've so, so that you could be a great conversationalist while the other guys did the fighting. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> keep your guns warm. I'll keep you. I'm going to talk back here. I have a lot. To, I've thought about all of this a lot. And, and that's pretty much how it worked out. So I was a PAL, so it was perfect. I mean, that's a hell of a reading list. Uh, what was it? Oh, Celine, Babel, who else? Uh, Hemingway, specifically the short stories. I mean, we did yeah, read yeah. more than that, but um, uh, and and of course, David Jones, uh, mm. who I had never heard of. Um, you know, uh, it's like uh, you, you know, he was so respected at the time among poets, right? So, like. Uh, when say um, something about who he was, Phil, because I, I don't know that most people will be familiar. Yeah, so he he served in, in World War One as an enlisted soldier, right? And after the war, he got into um, this like British uh, arts and crafts movement. He was a painter uh, and spent decades sort of working on you know, the poem in parenthesis, which, you know, when it came out was received this incredible response from some of the greatest poets, you know, like T.S. Eliot said it was a work of genius. Um, Auden said it does for the British and Germans what Homer did for the Greeks and Trojans. And he, and he wrote David Jones to tell him, your work makes me feel very small and madly jealous. 
Auden um, wrote him the Auden. Yeah, imagine receiving that from Auden, right? Yeah, that'd be a nice thing to hear. I, I'm sorry, just to butt in quickly, I neglected to say at the beginning of the episode, but uh, the manifesto today is Tom's essay to be incarnational from Poetry Magazine, which is a kind of extended um, a, a discussion of uh, Jones's in parenthesis. And the art today is Tom's poem. Um, is the title Spider? I don't have the full title in front <laughs> of me. Um, in which a spider weaves a web on my computer screen. Yeah. Um, so I didn't mean to cut you off. So so the, the Tom's essay to be incarnational is centered on this Jones epic. I mean, it is formally an epic, right? Yeah. That's a that's an accurate description. This this epic Tom, poem. Would you say that? Well, I mean, in terms of epic, I would say it's um it's a modern epic only in the sense that um it includes a, a, a huge amount of information uh, that before really hadn't gotten into poems, particularly war poems. In and what sense that, is it not an epic? Well, the sense that it's not an epic is is because the whole ethos of the poem is uh, anti-heroic. Right. Um, the the fact of the matter is is it is it isn't telling a story necessarily as a kind of self-conscious war poem. Uh, because you know, Jones just said that he did not set up shop as a war poet. He basically set up shop as a man who happened to be in the war and who, whose um, kind of psychological affinities and uh, class affinities, although class is a very slippery word, uh, was not with the officer class, but with the ordinary soldiers like himself. Right. Yeah. yeah and, there's, sorry, go ahead. And, and in any case, um, the, the poem is basically quite a simple structure uh, in comparison to, say, a modern epic like, you know, the Cantos by Pound or, you know, something by Eliot. Uh, it actually has a kind of straightforward narrative structure. Um, and, and basically what you can say about the poem in terms of but being an epic is that, it, is, is that the whole field of what ordinary soldiers think, felt, did, the entire physical reality of what they went through uh, from you know, walking um, through trenches at night to throwing yourself on the ground uh, during a bombardment and waiting for your shoulders to be lacerated by shrapnel uh, from every kind of domestic moment that went into the day of an ordinary soldier in trench warfare, the getting up on the fire step to, you know, stand to, which happened twice a day, you know, once in the morning and once in the evening. It still does, yeah. Yeah, just to make sure that the Germans were not going to come across. Um, Pleasure of saying the word fuck. Yeah. Is, yeah, exactly. I mean, about that. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, he has a marvelous passage in which he says that uh, soldiers using the word bugger, bugger, at having been doing detail to something they didn't like, had all of the power and magisterial um, uh, sort of status of the saint saying, 
you know, the fiat, the fiat of the saints. <laughs> and, and so you can see that it's an amazingly wide range of just sources, vocabularies. It has Welsh myth in it. And in a way, it's, uh, it's the only war poem that I know, uh, which has the full dimension of every form of experience that you could have and uh, told from a viewpoint in which on the very first page, on the dedication page, the last thing that he says is that the poem is also dedicated to the German soldiers well, against we, whom we found ourselves by misadventure. Should I read that? I'm going to screw up some of the, I'll, I'll just read the dedication. Yeah. This is the dedication. It's very, very beautiful. This writing is for my friends in mind of all common and hidden men of the secret princes and to the memory of those with me in the covert and in the open from the black wall, the Broadway, the causeway, the cut, the flats, the level, the environs, and those others from Treefar and Long Mountain, the Hendrith and Ihathod, the Pentre, Pandy, and Itaran, the Maelors, the boundary walls, and number four working, especially P.T.R.A. Lewis Gunner from Newport, Monmouthshire, killed in action in the Bo Sing sector northwest of Ypres sometime in the winter of 1916 to 17, and to the bearded infantry who exchanged their long loaves with us at a sector's barrier, and to the enemy front fighters who shared our pains against whom we found ourselves by misadventure. It's the only yeah. poem I know which is dedicated to the enemy, too. Yeah. So... I there's a, a, an absence at the center of this podcast, which is a direct discussion of in parenthesis, which I take full responsibility for. It was too long for me to read in time. I have started to read it. I have no excuse, really, because Phil has been impressing on me for years, my uh, responsibility to read it. I did not read it. I was like, listen, I'm not reading 200 pages in this period of time, so... <laughs> I said, I'll get to it, but I've read a bunch of it. But the reason why the, the formal art is not in parenthesis, and yet we will be discussing in parenthesis at length, since it's the subject of Tom's essay in a kind of a comparative analysis with his own experiences as a war journalist or a, a not a war journalist, a, I don't know, famine journalist as a journalist, let's say. And with uh, Wilfred Owen's uh, poetry of the First World War, the reason why there's this strange decision not to make that the formal subject um, has to do with my own inadequacies. Um, so I, I apologize. I take full responsibility. It's all right. Um, Tom, Tom and I have both read it many times. So, yeah. <laughs> but you sure know what I thought of, Tom? Have you, uh, are you familiar with uh, Charles Wilford? Do you know him at all? I've heard the name, but I haven't read it, so I'm ignorant there. So Wilfer's uh, equal. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 yeah. Okay, good, good. As a, a baseline of ignorance is what we're going for here. Uh, Wilfer was a great uh, crime writer, genre writer. Um, you know, he's sort of credited with like what they call uh, psycho pulp, or I forget the exact name. He wrote this series of Miami novels that are like noirish, but sort of more sociopathic. Um, By the way, sociopathic he, noir was one of the things Tom also had me read. Uh, okay, great. But, they, but like, I think, I think Williford is, I think Williford is, is far superior to Thompson. I'm not a big Thompson guy personally, but that's a different uh, conversation. But <laughs> Williford started as a poet while he was still in the army. The, one of the crazy things about Williford is that he, 
he retired from the Air Force. Actually, he began his career as an enlisted man um, and served 30 years, went from the Army to the Air Force. But he published a book of poetry while he was still a, a first sergeant in the Army um, called Proletarian Laughter, uh, which is a not a great book of poetry, frankly, but very strange. And uh, I thought of it and its materiality um, in when Tom was discussing yeah. the quality of Jones's writing and the, the materiality of Jones's writing and the, the lack of moralizing made me think of Williford. Jones um, sort of lays out what he's trying to do in the preface. He says, I've only tried to make a shape in words using as data the complex of sights, sounds, fears, hopes, apprehensions, smells, things exterior and interior, the landscape and paraphernalia of that singular time and of those particular men. I have attempted to appreciate some things which at the time of suffering, the flesh was too weak to appraise. Yeah. And, and so Tom's essay gets to the Jones and to this question of war poetry from the position of a question posed to him yeah. by a friend. And what year is this, Tom? You've just come back from Mogadishu. Is that right? Yeah, it's uh, back. Well, the famine happened over several years, but the particular year I'm talking about has coming back in 2011. And so, um, yeah, him asking me what I had felt about observing a famine close up. And that was basically his question. I just returned from seeing a famine firsthand. And one of them asked me how I felt after seeing so many starving people. It's difficult to answer a question like that coherently. The statistics, more than 250,000 dead, the majority of them children, mean nothing because nobody is moved by a statistic. And then um, uh, it goes on. And then my friend pressed me and said he hadn't asked what I thought, but what I felt and insisted that I answer him. And honestly, I felt enraged. On the surface, a petty cliched rage having to do with our cars and comforts, but underneath that, a rage with more substance, less stupidly self-involved by watching people starve to death, not in a once in a lifetime famine, but the fourth famine in a decade. You see why hunger is so degrading. A hungry person will do anything. Um, and it goes on. Um, and, and then you, well, I'll just read one more quick bit because this is, so I said to my friend that I didn't know what to do with such feelings and perceptions, that they weren't exactly useful. If people are starving here, there, they aren't starving here. Or if they are, they aren't dying in the hundreds of thousands. And news photos of starving kids felt to me at least like a kind of disaster porn. And my rage was just part of that, a defense against a deeper lassitude, even despair. But I wasn't gonna give up my car and comforts. And my rage felt and feels like a kind of cant, PTSD light, you could call it. Yeah, I mean, I um, I related to that, uh, you know, and and I I would imagine that a lot of um, uh, veterans felt something similar. Yeah, and it was certainly a kind of uh, preoccupation of mine, and I think of a lot of ours was like how to respond to such questions and. You know, if I had it to do all over again, my advice to myself would have been 
to think about it less, you know? And like, um, I honestly feel in retrospect, I would have said, just say the first thing that comes to your mind and then walk out of the room, you know, and like, don't have an extended conversation about it, but, um, just say whatever you, whatever you think without filter. Uh, but at the time there's this like profound, um, paralysis almost where you're, in the instant of reaction, weighing your own motivations against the kind of morality of responding in one way or another, not wanting to provide people with uh, tragedy porn, not wanting to say something that's going to be, uh, you know, that's that's going to seem like horrific and yet and yet effaced of all its horrificness because it's just a statistic that you're reciting. And that can shut you up, I think. And um, and also and there's yeah. a sense, you know, I remember um, as a Vietnam veteran talking about like coming home and how it was just inconceivable to him that Vietnam wasn't like the dark star around which everybody was, yeah, right. it, you know? Yeah. And like, even if you can kind of impress upon people the seriousness of it, there's a sense it's like, you're not in orbit around this, you know? Like... It's, yeah it's 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 a it's an external thing you know it's like oh like and there's often you know there's a kind of thing too that you sometimes see where it's like there's a book by um uh called great house um uh by nicole Krauss, but this sort of like litany of of kind of um uh you know different atrocities throughout the 20th century that, that, you know, the characters are, are obsessed with. And, and at one point, you know, like there's this one character who just kind of thinks about like the Holocaust and, and Argentina and, and all these other things all the time. And, and it's like, you could just tell that his like inner life was deeper than other people's and this sort of sensibility of the book. And it's, it's in many ways, it's a very smart book in many ways and sort of criticizes it at the same time. So I don't want to be too strong, but there's this idea of like the morality you know, the sort of deep importance of the people is like people who observe these things and think about them. And yet like consuming disaster art, right? Can be an aesthetic pleasure like others, you know? I mean, it can be an erotic pleasure, right? I mean, this is well, like, this is I gotta say goes. like the, yeah. the thing that was um, the, the essay felt, you know, look, I, I, related to it but it, i related to it uh it felt familiar to me yeah. until i got to the paragraph <laughs> where tom makes the point uh quoting an israeli film director that yeah, there is a generation uh ari uh, what was his name lipsker yeah lipsker there's a generation of young israelis who were um whose erotic imagination was awakened by seeing footage of concentration camps and even before that actually when you know you say um, the naked women going to the gas chamber yeah it's like this well, is your first encounter with, uh, maybe yeah. maybe women maybe men maybe like the the cruelty of it i mean i it's like the abjectness of it the the sadism of it the nakedness of it or the horrificness of it you know i mean the horror itself could induce a kind of erotic frisson you know um 
And uh, and there's a line that, that Tom has, and this is actually before he's brought up the Holocaust part, where he says, um, we've all seen hundreds, maybe thousands of pictures of starving people. What do we learn from such pictures except to deflect them? We superimpose an image of Christ on the cross or see juxtaposed on the same page or screen, a starving body next to a female model in a bathing suit thrusting her breasts at us or a male model flaunting his waxed, perfectly hairless chest. And that the nearness of those things um, is inescapable. And, and so you find yourself, I, I felt like the, the trap was on the one hand, you have the meaningless statistic, the statistic that's in a sense even worse than meaningless because it supposes that it's doing something, but in fact is a kind of, you know, a, a silencing in effect. And then the, the pornography of, of starvation on the other hand. And Tom, I wonder if you can say, how do you go from there to Jones and Owen and the poetry of the First World War? How does, how does the one lead you to the other? Uh, well, there's a pretty... Um... The root isn't as subterranean as you'd think, in fact. Um, you know, when I was a kid, and this is part of the essay, uh, my first exposure to the Holocaust as, as an event was, you know, when I was something like uh, 10 or 11 years old, my history teacher uh, had an old uh, newsreel and he showed it to us. And I don't think he'd screened it beforehand. Uh, because a large part of the film was looking at naked bodies lined up as people were about ready to go into the gas chamber. And, you know, lacking a sufficient context, you know, for that, um, every one of us in the room, we were shocked, not by the knowledge of the gas chamber or the historical you know, a horror of what we were watching, but we were shocked by seeing a grown-ups, grown-up women, grown-up men, totally naked, standing in line in what was obviously a really cold day. And they were supposedly going in to take showers. Um, and the thing that was most striking about it was the nakedness, just the the nakedness of the bodies. And I'm sure that for, I had never seen a naked body, except maybe for my mother, but only glancingly, and then with shame and turning my head away. And, and so I, I think that there's a slight, like you say, there is a kind of titillation in that. It's also forbidden, right? It's a very complicated set of feelings that you're experiencing or that I was experiencing at that moment. And then also I was being told the story about how Germans took uh, Jewish people and, you know, uh, murdered millions of them. Uh, and so in terms of how you get from that to Jones, one of the things that I, I was so struck by um, in the poem is that Jones himself also understood in a certain way uh, the deep, that in a way, one, one way you can think about it is that toward the end of the poem, uh, there's a German soldier and a um, British soldier 
and they kill each other and then they embrace and they lie down both dead and the and and the thing that's interesting about it is this is uh, of course the old trope is you know that combat um at least before it was mechanized that combat kind of created this uh sense of um you know the noble uh, uh foes who were in a certain way you know because they were both risking their lives because they were putting their skill on the line as as um, you know people who could use swords or whatever they used and and all this of course is kind of chivalric um uh, uh romance it has nothing to do with what actually happened at the battle of agincourt when you look at it close up basically what happened to the battle of agincourt has nothing to do with chivalry it has to do with the fact that the french knights had so much armor on that when they charged the english uh that you know the english were uh had put lots of stakes in the ground and when the french knights came at them the, you know they had so much armor on that they had to be lifted onto their horses by machines so that when the cavalry rode into these stakes, the soldiers simply drew back. Of course, they were covered, you know, they were being showered by arrows, which killed many people. And there was a huge crush. And all that the, all that the, um, that the, the, the um, men who were behind uh, the people shooting arrows had to do was go through the stakes, grab the knights, pull them off their horses, and cut their throats. <laughs> and that was the great battle of Agincourt. It was a slaughter. And the more, more the horses got um, you know, jammed up against the stakes, the more the infantry coming along got jammed up. Nobody could move a muscle in order to defend themselves. So that doesn't have anything to do, obviously, with the kind of chivalric romance of it. And Jones is invoking both of those things, because in one way, I think what happens in terms of the erotic energy of the poem is it gets diffused throughout in this kind of hyperphysicality in which everything is perceived, in which you are living at you know, the absolute uh, uh, pitch of your nerve ends. And because you're anticipating death at every moment, and because there is this uh, hyper-consciousness of what could happen to you, even as you're in communion with, you know, three or four or five soldiers and friends, that there is a certain kind of love that's fostered out of that, which of course has to have an erotic component because it's so based in the body. And I think that that is one of the ways in which, you know, the the kind of titillation that I'm talking about in terms of Ari, Ari Libsker and you know, how interested he was, you know, there were the, these, um, you know, comic books called the Stalogs, and you would read them and they would have these uh, sadistic, uh, a Nazi uh, uh, female prison guards who would then ritually humiliate, you know, the uh, captured uh, GIs. But, you know, all of that, all of that sort of a subterranean, uh, chaotic, um, uh, 
uh, erotic energy that uh, everybody, you know, that, that in normal society you want to channel in kind of socially acceptable ways, all of that has exploded, you know. Uh, all the moral categories yeah. are, are exploded. And suddenly moral categories of any kind seem uh, totally inadequate to what people are experiencing. So I would say that the way, the way in which the erotic energy works into the poem is through those kinds, is through that kind of, uh, you know, strangely displaced, but absolutely, um, absolutely um, uh, uh, physical manifestations. One soldier embracing another soldier and that having both a kind of chivalric overlay and at the same time having the kind of awful physical reality of wounds bleeding and flesh mutilated yeah let's let's give a little bit of the poem and this is a so you, you uh talk about one section of the poem that might give people an idea and i it's, i have an essay coming out in the point where i spend some time on the precise same section which is the death of mr jenkins right um so they're going out through through no man's land and this might give people a sense of of what we're talking about we're talking about sort of the emphasis on perception so this is this is the description. Uh, this is from in parenthesis. Mr. Jenkins half inclined his head to them. He walked just barely in advance of his platoon and immediately to the left of private ball. He makes the conventional sign and there is the deeply inward effort of spent men who would make response for him and take it at the double. He sinks on one knee and now on the other. His upper body tilts in rigid inclination this way and back. Weighted lanyard runs out to full tether, swings like a pendulum and the clock run down, lurched over, jerked iron saucer over tilted brow, clamped unkindly over lip and chin, nor no ventail to this darkening and masked face lifts to grope the air and so disconsolate in feebled fingers at the paltry strap, buckle holds, holds him blind against the morning, then stretch still where weeds pattern the chalk predella, where it rises to his wire, and Sergeant T. Coulter takes over. And there's a sort of strangeness to that description, right? He doesn't say, <laughs> you know, and then, and then Jenkins was shot uh, and falls down, because it's not, he's not giving it to you with the after the fact sort of categorization of intellectualizing of what has happened, he's giving you the sort of immediate sensory impressions um, that the soldier is getting at the moment as they're interpreting them along with the sort of weird elusiveness, right? So like to, you know, a bunch of Welsh soldiers who are steeped in this kind of mythology, right? There's a, there's a wonderful bit where one of the soldiers is, is talking with his buddy who's sort of thoroughly secular and it frustrates him because he's one for whom the fires at Troy still burned, right? So, you know, when that kind of soldier for whom the fires at Troy still burned sees this, he sees the ventail, right? Which is like the knight's um, uh, grill, I guess. Um, and that sort of background is embedded in, in, the, in perception, right? Um, and you're getting it undigested throughout the poem in terms of, with all its sort of complexity, right? If you think about like, you know, most poetry are taking reality, like, like a butcher takes to an animal, right? And they're kind of like carving it up and they're discarding like the, you know, the inedible offal and, and separating meat from bone in the back. And then 
And then they're delivering sort of like nice little like hand wrapped steaks for your digestion, right? And Jones has spent 20 years like scavenging in the back, you know, pulling out all the stuff that the butcher threw in the trash because he wants you to see what the living animal was. I think it's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah, that's very good. Very accurate, you know? I mean, and the, um, like that particular passage that you read uh, when it's, it's so distanced in its description. It's so not uh, trying to be elegiac. It's not Wilfred Owen, yeah, right? It's not Wilfred Owen. And, and, and the thing about it is when his helmet goes down over his face so he can't see anything, and basically, he's just staring into the darkness of his helmet. I mean, the darkness of the helmet even is shed of any kind of metaphysical significance. It's just darkness. That's it. And, and that's one of the things, that kind of um, hard-eyed, distanced, um, no, I'm not going to give you the usual emotive adjectives so that you can then empathize he doesn't do any of that. So, you know, um, Owen, Owen, Wilfred Owen, you know, would have froth, corrupted lungs, devils sick of sin, vile, incurable sores. Very different mode. Yeah, I mean, in in its own way, it's an attempt at a kind of uh, corporate corporeality, also. But it's like uh, using the body for um, sacrificial or or more abstract reasons so it's owen um i guess we should say a bit about it. i mean owen is one of the the kind of uh, archetypal world war one poets anti-war poets for whom um who died the, in the war right who died in the war and who's a great poet in his own yeah. i mean I, yeah absolutely you know, um said like the language you know and is also tremendous but as tom points out it's a language that is in its own way even when it is attempting to show what is defiling or what is profane nevertheless sort of upholds the categories of the sacred that precede the moral judgment that that determines that um you know this has been defiled and and that is in He's also an officer speaking on behalf of his men. Right, right. You know, which was which was Yates' actual complaint about Owen. <laughs> Yates had a bunch of complaints about was Owen. Was it? Yeah, Yates excluded the war poets from like this sort of 1930s anthology and, and people got really mad. Um, and he and he he sort of he argued um, you know that even though like the writers of the poems were all officers of exceptional courage and capacity. Uh, their letters are vivid and humorous. They were not without joy for all skill is joyful, but felt bound in the words of the best known to plead the suffering of their men. Uh, but Sassoon was, uh, he was an enlisted man, wasn't he? No. So no. Sassoon was an officer. Yeah. And I guess oh, okay. he didn't know, I mean, I like Isaac Rosenberg a lot, but I don't know if he would have been yeah. on radar at that point. But anyway. Yeah, um, yeah but, the, but the sort of the distinction in Yates, terms by the way, of... who, just one more note on. Yeah. So uh yates when he went to a party and wilfred owen was there he saw jones that's uh, sorry we saw jones at a party he bowed low to salute the author or, of and in parenthesis which is another so yeah he's also a fan of this poem yeah there's, yeah there, there, there's a reason why 
There's a reason why they're called Yates behind his back, Silly Willie. <laughs> Is that for real? Yates was yeah. called Silly Willie. Oh, you bet. Oh, oh, that's God. fantastic. No, I mean, there was it's a, a guy who needed to be taken down a peg, clearly. <laughs> um, well, you, I mean, but there's also there's a level of extravagance and, uh, you know, kind of uh, theatrical, sure. oh, theatrical self-dramatization that is both hilarious and kind of wonderfully exemplary at the same yeah. time. It's not subtle. I mean, oh, no, uh, no, it's yeah, not. yeah, yeah. No, well, let, let, let me give Yates on Owen. This is Yates complaining about Owen. My, my anthology continues to sell and the critics get more and more angry. When I excluded Wilfred Owen, whom I consider unworthy of the poet's corner of a country newspaper, I did not know I was excluding a revered sandwich board man of the revolution and that somebody has put his worst and most famous poem in a glass case in the British Museum. However, if I had known, I would have excluded him just the same. He is all blood, dirt, and sucked sugar stick. Look at the selection in Faber's anthology. He calls poets bards, a girl a maid, and talks about Titanic Wars. There is every every excuse for him, but none for those who like him. So, <laughs> well, what's interesting too about that, and is something to you know just uh, bracket with that, is that the kind of vocabulary, you know, I mean that, uh, and, and I agree with. I mean, I say critical things about Owen, but only from. A, a, a position of just profound admiration. He's yeah. a great poet. Absolutely. I mean, there's no question about it, Jake. I totally agree with you. And, yeah. and Bill, I, I, I know you, uh, you know, acknowledge that as well. But the thing that's interesting about Yeats's um, comment on Jones is that the kind of vocabulary, the certain kind of um, hyper-romanticized Keatsian lushness of yeah. language, growing Titanic words, Yeah, yeah. That's exactly the vocabulary that Yeats uh, used constantly yeah. in his early poems. And it was only uh, when he, you know, and when he turned 50 and actually got married with Georgie Hyde Leeds, Lees and, and uh, you know, he was a man of, um, you know, became more and more and more uh, implicated in the messiness of the politics of his time, including running the Irish theater, that a certain kind of reality took over and all of that rhetoric, that high rhetoric began to evaporate out of Yeats. You know, so, you know, if you say, oh, oh, Rose, fair Rose, oh, Rose of all my days. And then, you know, much later you, you say, um, a woman can be proud and stiff when on love intent, but love has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. and, and, and I think that in a certain sense, Jones takes it in a different step, a, a, a further step, and that, and that he has this unbelievably mixed, yeah. you know, uh, idiom. So it's drawing from, uh, from you know technical terms about weapons, as strong like Phil mentioned, from the Cockney, from uh, from profanity, uh, from you know British expeditionary force uh, jargon, uh, is drawing from Welsh myth. It's drawing from uh, Mallory and uh, Mort d'Arthur. I mean, it's an unbelievably mixed idiom, and and that in itself has. I don't think that has ever really. It that is sui generis, you know. Um, I guess I you could say yeah. Joyce, Joyce, yeah. in a, in a oh, very yeah. different register, 
tries to do something similar by I totally agree bringing in like the, the this or you know every idiom available to him but where but what he doesn't do that jones does in joyce it's located sort of everywhere and nowhere whereas in jones it's located in the body and so yeah. the image that i had not while I was reading Jones, actually, because when I was reading Jones, I was just experiencing it. But then when I read Tom on Jones, the image I had was like the the different registers, the wealth, Welsh myth, the Cockney slang applied to the military jargon, these different registers being actual bodily sensations in a way, yeah. not being uh, conceptual categories, but being there's another part of your essay, Tom, where you talk about the difference. What is it between uh, political opinion and political feeling? Yeah, political the, emotion, right? Political Conviction. emotion, yeah. right? Yeah, so there's political. also something that's like that's like uh, ex, like experiential emotion, or there's a you know in it's it in in a in a higher register to take a step back from the experience of it, which for me felt. Um, like the sort of what is so profound in it is the the inability to like rest that apart that the kind of the feeling and the physicality is not af it's not like some inert thing like it's charged with these resonances right. but the resonances are all located in the body they're not above the body you know but it's modern also it's, and like, it's not and a blandly like reductive materialist world right that's right, not what we're, that's right. not what we're talking about and and one that's actually very important because jones jones is a catholic writer very, right really Deeply catholic right so like from all that we're talking sort of the sort of taking out the sort of romance and the the abstractions you know you might be tempted to think that he's trying to like you know, strip us down to like a bare nihilistic only yeah. physical reality, right? But for Jones, and this is one of the points that, that Tom makes in the, uh, at the beginning uh, of the essay, um, you know, Jones notes that, you know, the very landscape had a quality to it, right? That was, well, decidedly non-secular, right? Um, you know, the landscape, uh, and he quotes grimly, the landscape spoke with a grimly voice. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. I don't think you would have that confusion reading Jones. I no. think you could have that confusion listening to us talk about him, but right. I don't think reading him, you would no, get no. the impression <laughs> that it was like <laughs> trying to be like kitchen, yeah. kitchen sink materialism or something like the the uh, the Catholic quality comes through the well, more let's, of let's it you read. That because you know, the, the title of the essay is to be incarnational, right? And Jones, and I'll just quote from, from the essay, Jones wanted poetry to be incarnational. He meant that literally, dressing the spirit in flesh. So the word becomes the words that bring the war not only into focus, but make it so physically immediate that abstractions evaporate. The terrible physicality of the war registers in our senses before lodging in the understanding. But when it finally does lodge there, the outrage and irony and despair so finely etched that any form of overt moralizing seems superfluous, if not a spiritual vulgarity. And then I'm going to very quickly quote a bit from an essay of Jones's, um, where he's talking about, you know, so Jones, 
um, the first time that he considered converting to Catholicism was after witnessing a priest distribu distributing the Eucharist in an outhouse. Um, uh, <laughs> which yeah, is, there were seven soldiers yeah. there. Yeah. It's and, beautiful. And of course, you know, the, the big difference between the Protestant and, and, and Catholic is that in the Catholic tradition, the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. It's not a symbol. Flannery O'Connor, right. you know, is having this debate and saying, oh no, it's just a symbol. And she said, if it's a symbol, then to hell with it, right? Um, and Jones, uh, it, you know, sees this and he, he's struck by the oneness between the offerant and those tufts that clustered round him in the dim lit byre, a thing I had never felt remotely as a Protestant at the office of Holy Communion. And Jones wants to use poetry uh, to sort of, uh, to show how we can relate, and I'm drawing, by the way, on a great book called Poetry and Theology in the Modern uh, oh, Era by okay. Anthony Domestico, which has a great bit on Jones, which I actually think he really liked, Tom. He wants to show how we can relate sort of sacraments with a capital S, the specific sacraments of the Catholic Church, to sacraments with a small s, right, but which he means like all human sign making, right? Yes. Um, and, uh, and he defines sacramentality as the defining feature of humanity. And he writes, Jones writes, angels only, no sacrament. Beasts only, no sacrament. Man, sacrament at every turn and all levels of the profane and sacred in the trivial and the profound, no escape from sacrament. What's that from? Uh, that is from, uh, I forget which essay. So it's a Jones essay? Yeah. Yeah, it's from one. Yeah, yeah, it's a Jones essay. I mean, it, it, it's partly recapitulated in his, um, in his uh, uh, introductory essay to... Uh, the Anathemata, which is a, right. a later poem that he wrote. Mm. But I, I just want to, you know, go on what Phil is saying. What, what Phil is saying, I think, is really, really um, crucial. And, and I think it, it and I think in, in a way, it, it's kind of a defining, uh, it's almost like a demarcation line between a, one kind of artist and another kind of artist. And w when people begin to talk about the, the, you know, uh, signs and signifiers, the kind yeah. of Saussurian difference. Jones doesn't accept that. Yeah. Words are not, you know, uh, simply signs that or signifiers. Words are not that. Words for Jones have the complete ability not to, quote unquote, um, you know, represent life, represent it, but to, and, and, and this is like one of those cheesy, you know, kind of literary critty things like I fucking despise, but pardon my French. But, but what he thinks that words do is that it presents life and, the, and what the words are is they incarnate what they are talking about. They aren't comments on something. They're the embodiment of what it is they are saying. And, and the example that he makes about that is he talks about when, a, when an artist uses the word wood. And, and this is something that he's deeply, deeply worried about. That when an artist uses the word wood, and when we read the word wood, and we come and, and we have an immediate association to the cross, that is that there's this wider realm of signification that words, you know, uh, refer to, but at the same time embody, physically embody. That is, 
you know, the whole idea that one of the drives in art is to bring the dead back to life. I, I don't mean, I mean, literally <laughs> back to life. That seems to me that deep desire is what Jones wants poetry to do. He wants, he wants all of that, all of, all of, all of history. And this is something that comes out in the poem, the anathema to all of the people who have lived through history in some way to be, to be brought back literally to life. And that I think is totally consistent with his, with his sacramental views and his Catholicism. You know, I mean, the, the that, Saussurian attitude and the whether you want to look at Saussure or Derrida or just the sort of sure. the, even a less uh, highfalutin utilitarian view yeah. is a, a pure, purely secular. Like, I mean, the, there's there is no uh, you you can't have a kind of it's not just Catholicism, like there is no religious position that can fully accommodate the idea of words as being nothing but signifiers or, or none that I'm aware of that's consistent with, uh, let's say, the Abrahamic, uh, you know, monotheistic religions. It's it all comes from the word and the word is uh, not a, not a, a gloss on life. Right. It's right. foundational to life. It's generative of life. And um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I I felt that. I wanted to say one thing about the something Tom talks about, which relates to nature and this distinction between how nature appears in the let's call them late romantic poets of the kind of Wilfred Owen variety, um, and somebody like Jones who represents something new and a kind of new category of writing and. And what uh, what Tom says is that even in Owen's syntax, natural imagery and war imagery are kept separate as if the old categories of pastoral and chivalric combat needed to be quarantined off from Jones's version of the war. And and so and, and it, it goes on and there's a lot of other great writing there. But the point is that there is a there is a uh, holding on to this category of the kind of symbolically sacred and the symbolically profane that are then projected onto the landscape. But modernism, and here I think Jones is, there's a modern quality. I don't, I don't mean like high modernism necessarily, but, yeah, yeah. but there's a modern quality that, that if you were simply looking at the landscape honestly, how could you possibly maintain the idea that, that it can be it kept separate. It all seems to have collapsed on top of itself. Like, so the idea that there is a, a pristine nature apart from, or a higher nature apart from machine or carnage or, or, yeah. or wreckage, it, it just, it wouldn't be uh, the intuitive position. I don't think it wouldn't be the natural position. And there are different ways you could take that. And I thought of Junger as I often think of Junger whenever I'm reading World War One stuff in the sense that for Junger, there's a pagan kind of uh, attachment to the destruction of nature, you know, maybe Nietzschean is a better word, mm -hmm. something like that. But, you know, 
like Junger also sees that there is nothing purely natural anymore. But instead of saying there's nothing purely natural because it's all God's creation or it's all, you know, human in some sense, for Junger, it's like this pagan revitalization through the machine. Whereas for Jones, it's not, um, it's, you know, it's, it's not so, um, it's not a pagan revitalization to say the least. It's like a, a sense that it's all operating in the same common field. And yeah. um, so I, I thought like, oh, there's, there's something so profound, obviously in, in the first world war, all the categories, it seems to me, of the 20th century, it's not World War II, it all comes out of the First World War. Right. And we haven't actually got past most of them. We're still, these are still the categorical distinctions we're operating with. You know what that makes me think of, by the way? Um, another person that, that, that Tom introduced me to, Isaac Babel. Because mm. I never forget the shock. I'm just going to read a little bit of a story called Crossing into Poland. Oh, great story. This is the very opening. The commander of the 6th Division reported, Novograd Volens was taken at dawn today. The staff, staff had left Krapivno and our baggage train was spread out in a noisy rear guard over the high road from Brest to Warsaw, built by Nicholas I upon the bones of the peasants. Fields flowered around us, crimson with poppies. A noontide ble breeze played in the yellowing rye. On the horizon, virginal buckwheat rose like a wall of a distant monastery. The Volens peaceful stream moved away from us in sinuous curves and was lost in the pearly haze of the birch groves, crawling between flowery slopes. It wound weary arms through a wilderness of hops. The orange sun rolled down the sky like a lopped off head and mild light glowed from the cloud porches. And... You know, there are these moments in writing where like, you know, that where you reach a sentence and it hits you like an electric shock, right? Yeah. Um, Chusaku Endo has one of those where I remember where I was, you know, when I read a particular bit in silence. And that's one of those moments that stays yeah. with you. And it's so, it's so beautifully set up because you've got, you know, the road built over the, the, the bones of the peasants and the virginal buckwheat, you know, like you think you're in this very comfortable world. That's why it works, that's right? Like it's the it, setup. Yeah, it's the setup that makes that so effective. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And the and the and the kind of moment when the walked off head I mean it's the, yeah, you see it's, it it's, tumbling down though. Oh right? I know. It, <laughs> you know? It, it's 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 a wonderful Monty Python moment. Yeah. You know, in which suddenly yeah. the mock heroic Kind of sweeps in <laughs> and it's sort of, but but the thing that's interesting about it is all that personification that's going on in the beginning it's not like just because you have a lopped off head and our reaction is you know oh oh okay you know it's like there's a sudden corrective nonetheless both of those both of those feeling tones are still present right yeah yeah, yeah. and 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 that's what i love about it is that it's not a simplification it makes it more complex yeah. And that kind of complexity is the thing that I really love about Jones and what you find everywhere. And, and because there isn't the kind of overt moralizing and because the poem is so hospitable to other voices other than just the consciousness of private ball, that what you, that what you feel as if is that the kind of, that, that some kind of coherent moral frame 
which would either make you feel comfortable or uncomfortable, depending on your own political convictions, is suddenly just out of bounds, irrelevant. Yeah. And, and I think that's the and I think that's one of the reasons why there's such immediacy in both the experience of reading the poem and a kind of complete immediacy of perception that happens as the poem unfolds. So that when you have uh, moments in, in which uh, Welsh myth suddenly enters into the poem, the way in which the, you know, the, the queen of the wood is figured at the very end of the poem, and the fact that the queen of the wood is now being, a, she's giving flowers to say a soldier named Fatty <laughs> or to, or to somebody who, who the narrator. Major Lily has, White. Major why. Lily White. Yeah. You, you get something, you know, but it, but it, you know, but it's, but it, but it isn't, it, but isn't the laurel leaf, you know, <laughs> it's like some ordinary flower and, and that kind of, you know, moving back and forth between many, many different tones. It's mock heroic, it's elegiac, it's anti-elegiac, it's enraged, it's comic. And those tones just coming right after the other without trying to necessarily orchestrate them, even though they are beautifully orchestrated, but not, but not from an ideological point of view. And that is the thing that is so remarkable about the poem. And that's why it has such tremendous momentum despite the fact that when you're reading it, you really are reading rather slowly, you know? So what's the perspective that's ordering them? What is the word you would use, well, Tom? If not, if not ideological, is it religious? Is it metaphysical? Is it aesthetic? I would, what say, is it? I would, say, I would say it's experiential, religious, yeah. metaphysical. Um, that that each, of, each one of these, each one of these um, ways of conceptualizing the world you know, has its own place, has its own moment. And that rather than, you know, one of the things that's so interesting is like, you know, when you read a guy like Christopher Hedges, which I'm sure you guys have read, right? Yeah, sure, sure. You know, war is a force that gives us meaning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's a very powerful spokesman for that kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like, it's not like you say, well, Christopher Hedges has oversimplified something, but there is a kind of way in which you have to have a certain sort of tunnel vision. Yeah, no, I would say Christopher Hedges is oversimplifying something. Okay. <laughs> I would go out on that. I, he can be perceptive. I mean, he also okay. plagiarizes. All right, okay, okay. You yeah. said it, yeah. not me. But in any case, all yeah, I'm yeah. saying is that yeah. there is a kind of tunnel vision that produces yeah. that yeah, sort yeah. of vision. And, and you know, Jones just takes the blinders off. Well, so there's a, this is speaking of Hedges, there's a bit where you say, I found that my politics and biases in writing about politically charged subject matter are fairly useless in writing poetry. If I'm dealing with such material, I want to discover my subject as I write and not have it arise from some prefab stance or hell of opinions that I simply populate. Ah, such, a, such a good line. Um, <laughs> hell of opinions being populated. No, I mean, may we, all, may we all escape from the hell of opinions. But, you know, there's something about uh, like the, exp- the, the categories you listed, Tom, can... Uh, coexist. The experiential and the aesthetic can coexist. The religious and the experiential can coexist. Somehow, the ideological can't coexist with anything. It obliterates other categories. So if you say it's ideological, you're saying essentially it's only ideological. But you don't actually necessarily have to pick exclusively from those other 
anchoring perspectives. It's, a person can drift in and out of them in a way that, in principle at least, is, is and increasingly in practice is not possible with the ideological perspective. Um, well, that's because I think that the, the, the ideological perspective is, is interested in, um, it's interested in abstraction. Yeah, it's interested in a kind of one-to-one -one correspondence between a political viewpoint and how the world is supposed to be, mm -hmm. and that's just not nearly. And but the, but the concrete maybe, has an overflow of significance, and that's the yeah, problem. exactly. I mean, there may be there may be certain you know necessary you know uh, functions in society that get enacted by that, but but for me, I I, I find that. As soon as I, as soon as I feel that I am in the grip of someone who has an ideological axe to grind, you know, I just all, all I can think of is, God, this is boring. Life is so short, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, yeah. even even and even especially when the ideological convictions are my own. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, you know when I'm when I ideological conditions I completely that I act, understand yes. that I act on that I yes. believe in, and yet if I'm if I'm trying to enter into a space where I want to feel like there's an intensification of experience as opposed to a diminution of it, it's not going to happen that way. You know, no, it's revolting actually to yeah. to find oneself being pandered to ideologically is a deadening revolting cheapening <laughs> experience that is like at, at the very least hopefully salutary and instructive in leading you away from that you know because it's yeah. so you can yeah. recoil from it i think that there's a reason why right which is that in, in a while back we, we talked about virginia wolf and how like the good essayist sort of draws a curtain around and, and you were talking about like with well, a good essayist they're talking to you at eye level, right? Mm. So you can see them if they slip down or whatever. And, you know, there's a way in which Joe, you know, Jones is giving you, is trying to give you as concrete a reality and reality in its richest sense, which includes the religious, which includes the mythological, right? Everything. And, but, but you're his conversation partner, right? He's trying to give you this experience, which he believes is, is in some sense, really conjured into being in the words. And then you, you respond to it as a creative free human, right? Hmm. Because it's not pre-digested for you. Hmm. Whereas ideological work, I mean, it's almost like you're supposed to download a message like a computer, right? I mean, hmm. propaganda is the, the creative response of the listener is not just beside the point, but it's sort of not wanted, right? Mm. For propaganda, for ideological content that you're pushing through work, the point is for the message, as in the computer download, to be the exact same number of ones and zeros that you then propagate to as many other you know, agents as possible, right? And for that metaphor to collapse as you increasingly become algorithmic in your construction, and it's no longer you, human, processing metaphorically in ones and zeros. It's just we program the bots, the bots operate. There's flesh bots, there's inorganic bots, but the bots are the bots. 
And um, that's how it works. And uh, listen, none of this is easy. It's not easy to talk about these things. It's not for nothing that the essay starts with the fact that it's not easy to talk about these things. It's not easy to know how to process what to say, what is what is sacrosanct? What is cheapening? I mean, it's like, it's okay. It's not easy, but there are the fact that it's not easy. Doesn't absolve you of your responsibilities. And if you went there and you saw it, you probably have a responsibility to say what you saw at a minimum, maybe not to everybody. Maybe you don't have a responsibility to, to broadcast it continually to the world, but if you're going to talk about it, you have a minimal responsibility to say what you saw honestly insofar as that's like possible for you. That is a real responsibility. That that is an actual duty of being a human being um, that you can't just walk away from. And like the, and I think it's important to say the instinct to not moralize as an aesthetic or even a moral principle in its own way Hmm. doesn't mean you're not, it doesn't mean you you don't express yourself. It's not inexpressiveness, right? Not not moralizing. It's not inertness or muteness or or inhumanness, which I think sometimes people slip into in the sort of in the in the desire to get away from the moralizing. They go, but that's that's not the answer. Yeah. Well, there's there's a there's a oh, go ahead, Phil. Well, I just wanted to make sure. So this essay. <laughs> is probably more important to me in terms of how I think about war writing than any other piece of writing that's out there, right? Um, and and I think it's it's because it's so attuned to that sort of challenge and and, and the import of it. Um, I do also want to talk about the boy and the plumpy nut at one point, uh, but anyway, go on, Tom. Ah, uh, yeah, we, we should be, we, we need to transition in a second, but we should talk about that before. Yeah. Uh, oh, there. well, I mean, I mean, I, First off, my condolences about the essay. I, <laughs> but I mean, anyway, so, you know, uh, sincerity always grates. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I think it was interesting to me at the outset of the conversation. And, um, and Phil, I, you know, you've written about this really beautifully, I think. Um, that is that you come back uh, from Iraq and people put you in the special category. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And their idea, you know, it, it's like, oh, he's looked death in the asshole or, <laughs> you know, you know, war, war is hell. And, you know, he's got the thousand yard stare. All of these kinds of ideas, you know, that people have about what, you know, you know, what soldiers actually experience or which, you know, I've seen, my experience of soldiers has been from, you know, being around them, being, you know, frankly protected by them um, and, and also seeing them in, in certain, um, you know, kind of crazy scenes in which they are also having to affect civil order while everything is just going crazy. And, and they're caught inside all kinds of ideological webs that, you know, sometimes they understand, sometimes they don't. There I was acting like a journalist dressed in my clown suit legitimacy conferred by my baby blue UNHRC helmet and flak jacket. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, that's exactly, I mean, the sense of one's own absurdity as a kind of, you know, moral observer is ridiculous. It's just stupid. I mean, 
But I, I wanted to ask both of you guys this question earlier because because you brought it up, Jake, and you said it wasn't easy to talk about these things. But when, and Phil, you've written about this, you know, the, like I believe a particular female friend of yours saying to you, you know, well, I, I you know, I never imagine what you've been. Through. Yeah, exactly. And then you say, well, I've never had a kid. You know, that's your response. <laughs> like, like there are areas of experience. Why is this area being privileged over this area? You know, why is it that we have these kinds of hierarchies of supposed value? And, and that this why is it that we assume that I know what I've been through just because I've been through it? I know it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, right. and, 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 but, but the question, the question is this, you know, you come across, um, you come across slogans like this all the time, speak truth to power. And, and you just say to yourself, well, does the person who says that know that that comes of course, they don't know, and maybe this is just a certain kind of intellectual snobbery, but there's an important point underneath it. Does the person who says that know that the person who is saying that is, is, is Kent to King Lear, and that King Lear is a dreadful tyrant, <laughs> and that you can look at Kent as kind of like, you know, one of, uh, you know, Latimer Putin's lieutenants, and he's basically saying the Latimer... No, Latimer, that's not the best way to oppress the people. We got to oppress them in this way, <laughs> you know. And and so you can you, obviously people are saying that in a different context, and, and that's and that's that's okay. But but the question that I want to ask you guys is this: so the idea that you're coming home, and basically the I think the expectation. Mm -hmm of people when they talk to guys like you, unless they're close personal friends, is that they want you to speak truth to power. <laughs> Whatever, you know, I mean, and then there's a certain kind of prefab expectation that, you know, you guys have this kind of privileged understanding and, and, and in a very real sense, you know, you do because there is, there is a certain kind of, you know, when I come back and you, I've seen a famine, well, that's not an experience that most Americans are privy to. But then, like you say, Phil, having a child is not going to be an experience I'm going to be privy to. But I just wonder how you guys think about that now, now that you've been back for a while. You know, because one of the things I, I feel find in myself is that I very much live a kind of split screen existence, you know, that in this part of my brain, whatever is going on overseas is, you know, has prominence. And in this part of my brain, you know, I'm hassling with the phone company. And that those two realities, they're split, but that's just the nature of my experience. And I just wonder if you guys experience anything like that, this kind of split screen reality between what happened then and what happens now. And even because both of you have stayed so deeply involved in these issues, you know, I mean, years and years years now you know well, I, I i would say that in i i don't know that i had the split split screen experience i think that for my first few years when i got back from iraq in particular uh was just it was an overwhelming experience and so i, I didn't have the ability to kind of um even like bifurcate in that way and i yeah. think it just uh it was just overpowering. I didn't know how to talk to people about it, but also, you know, if somebody asked me, 
you know, I didn't want to be asked, but I also didn't want to not be asked. So it was, um, it was a lose lose. And if I had to give myself advice, I would say, I would have said like, think about it less and just talk when you want to talk and don't talk when you don't want to talk and, and be less deliberate about the significance of what you say and when you say it, I, you know, I have no idea whether that's uh, practical. I don't know that that saying that to myself at that time would have had any effect. I don't know that I was capable of that, frankly, but, uh, but I feel like the, um, the being sort of uh, shut up inside. This this will sound like a very strange thing to invoke in, uh, in this context talking about when I just got back from Iraq, but I've been uh, reading my daughter, um, Oh, the places you'll go. And, um, which is, a, you know, a great Dr. Seuss book. And there's this brilliant, brilliant, um, section towards the end. I think maybe it's the penultimate section where, you know, Seuss has first described all the incredible experiences and the ability to choose. And, uh, you know, sometimes it'll go your way. Sometimes it won't. And then it gets to this section where he talks about the waiting place and it's like, you know, it's uh, limbo, it's purgatory, you know, I mean, it's, it's a children's book. So the, the symbolism <laughs> isn't, it's not quite that heavy, but there are all these people stuck in the waiting place and they're stuck because they're waiting for buses or, or they're stuck because they're waiting to be able to unstuck themselves from their own feelings, etc. And, you know, uh, as Seuss makes very clear, you want to spend as little time in the waiting place as possible. And when you leave the waiting place, the boom bands are playing, you know, oh, it's like, and the, out there are the boom bands. And so why would you stay in the waiting place? I, I don't know whether that would have done anything or you know if this is just a, the kind of um post you know just something you're able to say after the fact but i i wish i could have been less calculating and deliberate and, and that's not even the right word calculating and deliberate i wish i could have like agonized over it less hmm. um there's a yeah. story jake wrote called smile there are ieds everywhere which is published in <laughs> Fire and Forget. Um, and there's a section where there are these sort of intense discussions between this dad who's back from Iraq and uh, his wife. And he's waiting. So Jimmy and Cole are guys he served with, and he's going to be reunited with him. So the wife says, Yesterday you barely spoke to me, and when you did, your teeth were clenched. It wasn't fair. She waited, but I didn't say anything. She went on, you reminding yourself of better times or what it was like to be there? What's going to be like when Jimmy and Cole get here? You're going to tell them everything you won't tell me and pretend one year is all there is to you? Then you'll come home, this, here, your home, and be mad at me for not knowing what they know. She held in a breath and her eyes flickered. For a moment, I thought she was going to laugh and I wanted to laugh with her, but her mouth never moved. And I realized that she was somewhere in the middle register between a memory of happiness and the feeling of its loss. When she spoke again, it was gone. What about Petersburg and the Neva River? We were going to be Vadim and Ludmilla. You could go there with Cole, but would he know why? What do they know about that? What do they know about you? 
Her voice was still soft and she dipped her head to catch my eye, but I stared down at her feet and pressed my tongue to the back of my teeth. You don't even try to talk about it, she said. How many times had I tried? While I was there, I imagined telling her everything. And now that I was back, we couldn't pass a word between us that sounded the same on both sides. It only makes it worse, I said. She moved toward me, shaking her still clenched hands. No, you don't talk to me, you lecture. You spend an hour telling me how many frequencies your different radios can hold and which one's better in your car and which one's better on foot. And if I ask one wrong question, if I stray the tiniest bit outside these rules I don't even know that you won't tell me, then you shut down, shut down again and punish me for not understanding. We didn't have cars, Hummers, whatever. I spoke deliberately, forcefully, enunciating like I was talking to a child. High mobility, multi-purpose wheeled vehicle, HMMWV, Humvee, Hummer, Humvee, whatever. Is that what I don't understand? That it's not a Hummer? Is that what you're holding against me? She reeled back and imitated my voice. HMMWV, Humvee. <laughs> That's wonderful yeah. for writing. It's great. Yeah. It's painful really to um, But yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. One, one thing I want to say in response to both of you is that, you know, when Jones came back, this is just the interesting thing, I think, that's interesting. And then if we have to move on, we can move on. But the period of the war, and Jones was there for the entire war. Yeah. He got wounded in Mamat's Wood, and then he went back, and he, then he came back. But the war that he says that he's talking about is the war as it existed between 1915 to 1916. He says... After that, that the war became much more mechanized. He said, after that, the, the and, and I think this is really where the tremendous psychic damage that was done to Jones occurred. Because apparently, you know, he, from 1915, when he talks about that period of time, it seems as if there's a kind of, almost a profound kind of happiness about being there but after he's wounded then he goes back home uh then he goes back out to the front and they keep uh you know offering to promote him and he refuses any kind of promotion because he wants to stay with enlisted men that that was when the tactics changed and rather and 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 that these massive bombardments were now the purpose of them wasn't to, you know, soften up for a, for a frontal assault. Right, they didn't do right. the frontal assaults. They just massacred people. Right. That was it. The war got progressively more and more mechanized. And I think that... And, and the fronts froze. Yeah. So it was mechanized exactly. and immobile. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what happened is when, you know, when Jones came back from the war... You know, uh, you know, he he had gone to arts. He went to art school, like uh, Phil said. He he was deeply involved in the art, artist. You know, artist. I mean, he was a very very famous artist. He was much better known as an artist during his lifetime than he ever was as a poet. Even though, you know, great poets said he was fantastic. But the fact of the matter is, you know, I, I think um, he published, um, you know, in parenthesis and. It, it never even made it to the United States. It, it was published when in 37? Yeah, something like that, 39. And when did he write it, Tom? Do you know? When was it? And being he wrote composed? it. It was it, it took him over 20 years to write. 
So he spent that whole time after the war writing. Yeah, right. Because he felt that no one else had, yeah, you know, recorded the his version of the war. Right. And and actually, he would never have finished the poem if he hadn't been, you know, encouraged by a friend of his named, um, you know, uh, uh, Harmon Greasewood. That that's how chancy all of this stuff is. Yeah, you know what I mean. And and then thereafter, you know, he suffered profound. Um, what I, I mean, you know, now it would be called PTSD, but he profound. There were years shell shock. The, yeah, he had shell shock. And but listen, you made the point, and I, I, I we do have to transition. And I, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off, That's but right. I, I want to make this point because it this resonated with me also. You make a point about like the distinction between shell shock and PTSD, right? Words and what they evoke, and it's a. I, I, I thought about it a bit more, and I think. Tom, you'll stop me if I'm wrong, but the general point is that there's a materiality to shell shock, whereas PTSD is a kind of professional therapeutic term. But if you take that a step farther, right? Yeah. You talk about shell shock, the word itself suggests a condition that is not amenable in any direct sense to therapeutic intervention. You've been shocked by a shell. What are you going to do about that? Like, I don't know. You'll you'll have to try and figure it out. And, you know, like the reverberations will lessen over time and the shock will lessen over time. And the shell is out there somewhere. And it's an event that occurred, which you're left with PTSD in its in the words themselves and the way they are generative. Right. And precisely the way that we were talking about that words aren't merely signifiers but are generative themselves ptsd proposes a syndrome that is that can be yeah cured through therapeutic intervention or that it cured isn't even necessarily the right word that requires therapeutic intervention yeah. right that is made to be treated through therapeutic intervention i'm not saying that there's no no, role I, I, for therapy and no. the, you know this is not but you understand what i'm saying I totally it's like, get what you're saying yeah yeah it's 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 a it's a form of disconnection yes or, and one just seems to me a fundamentally like more in touch with reality than the other yeah, the, right. the, 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 the like shell shock the two words the the shell that causes the shock just seem to me a much more complete and honest rendering of what's going on there than the professionalized version, which superimposes its, you know, its own. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, the thing that's interesting too about Jones is that, you know, his inability really, I mean, he never, he never had a family. He never, I mean, there was a certain kind of profound isolation that he lived in. And the other thing, too, for such a well-known artist, the guy was really poor. <laughs> I mean, the circumstances of his life were extremely difficult. And that's partly because he could not, you know, get a job at Faber and Faber's and work, you know. And, and there are all kinds of, you know, psychological reasons for that. But a good, you know, a large portion of them did have to do with, with what he went through in the war. Mm. You know? and, and that's... You know, the, that's one of the things that I, I that is so interesting to me about Jones is that you know he always really lived on the edge of 
of starvation. I mean, there was at a certain point when he was terribly malnourished. This is just during the Second World War, in which if people had not intervened, he might have had serious, serious, you know, kind of physical repercussions from it. So it's a, and 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 the thing that's so interesting. I went to visit his house, um, uh, which is way out of, outside of London, the place where he was born, in a place mm. called Broccoli. And when you go to the little cemetery there. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a municipal cemetery. And I remember walking around it and we're wandering around and around and around <laughs> looking for, you know, Jones's stone and you can't fucking find it. There's no signs to it. There's no like, you know, any kind of like Jones, son of broccoli. You know? I bet you, you could find those. Uh, basically the only yeah. way we found it was we ran into some guy. Yeah, and I, and I said we're looking for the grave of David Jones. And he said, "Oh, yeah, that guy." He said, "He's over there." Yeah, and we went over there. The stone was totally covered over, you know, by uh, grass. It was flat in the ground, and you know, we so we uncovered it. And one of the things that that Jones was very, very deeply involved in as an artist was making inscriptions. And you see the inscriptions in the books. And so he would come up with these beautiful typefaces. And that was one of the things that, that he did um, on, on this stone. And there's, he made the inscription, he designed the stone. And I, I just thought it was such a wonderfully fitting, you know, um, uh, experience that this really great artist, really great British you know, a poet, whatever you want to call him, Welsh, whatever, was so obscure in some country that you couldn't even find his stone. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. So Tom's poem, which I have in front of me here, is in which a spider web weaves a web on my computer screen. And while I am traditionally the reader uh, from Manifesto, <clears throat> Manifesto, a podcast, <laughs> it seems inappropriate with the poet in our presence. So, Tom, if you would just read at the very least the first two stanzas for us, yeah, but please. do it in, in Jake's voice, please. please. With... <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's very easy for me to do it in Jake's voice. <laughs> the, well, anyway, I'll just say a word about the poem. It's in two parts, and the second part uh, takes this kind of hard left turn. I mean, right. uh, so would it be? possible to read the entire poem because i think read the poem absolutely okay. absolutely all right in which a spider weaves a web on my computer screen one what is that shadow that weaves itself so fine across the edge of my computer screen there it is a pinprick of a spider weaving a web i'm looking through as if it were a veil of second sight that as I type these words behind the veil, the screen light shines right through. It weaves the sun into its web and turns the screen into a mirror, shooting back my own eyes, looking at the spider and wondering what the spider knows of me. Hello, pal, I want to say, but that feels unctuous overly familiar for what I know I'm going to do. The web sways and ripples each time 
I breathe, getting ready to rip it away. There's a lot of casual brutality to reconcile. The spider clings to its web's outer rim, plucks with a slender leg a near invisible guy wire each time I type a word and the silk trembles. Two. He said that being a refugee was like living like a spider in the bottom of a well. He held this quiet dignity close to him. The others in the room stopped talking. I won't repeat exactly what he said, since it's his to tell. But it had to do with how his mother died, how his home was destroyed. The words you use to talk about such things, the second they're uttered, sound suspect. For him to say, the soldiers shot my father, they blew up our house, and the worst thing I ever saw, the very worst, was seeing my baby brother crying on my dead mother's breast. It's only my rendering in English what the translator, speaking in French, said he said. Raveled in words as a spider is raveled in its silk, I think I should know what to want to say, but to want to say is not what the man in his use of a figure of a spider drifting suspended, tethered to a lifeline spinning out impossibly fine intends when he says, the deeds to my house are stained with blood and then shows you the stains, three long stains, dried brown and fading above the signature line. That was great, Tom, thank you. What year was that published? Uh, well, that's in the new book. Like a week ago? <laughs> oh, it, it's that recent. Oh yeah, yeah, it was just the beginning of the month. And I mean, it was published in the, um, uh, you know, in a in a penguin anthology about insects of all places. <laughs> <laughs> that, that I mean, yeah, I, that might have been a, a strange choice for the penguin anthology. Very strange. I mean, yeah, yeah were, the the bar was really low. Is it about bugs? It's in. <laughs> right, right. I think maybe they read the first part and not the second part. Is that possible? Um, interesting. I wonder what's in their anthology about refugees. I, I'm afraid to. <laughs> <laughs> lots of butterfly yeah right right ladybugs um, so why i i wondered in reading this right like the that that turn that abruptness from the first stanza to the second which is abrupt in subject matter though not necessarily um like there's obviously a thematic continuity between the two and then when you read the second stanza, of course, your mind then goes back and like rereads the first stanza in light of the second stanza. But without asking you uh, one of these obnoxious process <laughs> questions, you know, like what what was the 
I, I'm always I, I would I'm always interested in poems in particular in their formal composition. And it seems like a fairer question to ask, frankly. So why this structure and how did you arrive at this structure? And 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 the last thing is like, why, how did you arrive at it? And then what is your sense of the kind of effect of the two stanzas in relation to each other? Uh well, you know, uh, very often when I'm trying to, all of these, one of the things that I think that I love about Jones is that all questions, as Jones says, in are, are formal questions. Right, and, right. And so one of the things I... I, I think happens in the poem is that when I discover that I've got a six line stanza, you know, basically, I mean, the poem does come out of an experience of talking to an old Palestinian man in Syria uh, who basically told uh, a, you know, a group of people who were gathered in, including people who are living in his, in this village in Syria about his experience of having grown up uh, during uh, you know, the, Nakba, the catastrophe, the expulsion mm -hmm. of Palestinians from um, Palestine. And in, in any case, uh, he actually did use um, this term. He said, you know, his, his, when, when this event occurred, um, then, he, then he went, you know, he, he, obviously he left his home um, and he ended up basically teaching a school for many years in um, Saudi Arabia. And now he was back in Syria. And uh, the, the thing that was so interesting to me is he was, after he told the story and then he said, you know, the, the, you know, the deeds to my house are stained with blood. And I thought, my God, that's like Shakespearean or something. Like, that's an amazing piece of metaphor, you know? And then he said to me, uh, would you like to see the deeds? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I went, fuck, I really, really, really don't know. You know, this is an order of complexity and historical intimacy knowledge, which is just way beyond my, you know, comprehension. And so I said, of course. And so he called his, uh, his nephew who rode up on a, on a little moto, a kind of heavy set kid, and said, here the deeds are. <laughs> and we looked at them and there are these bloodstains on them. I mean, what looked like bloodstains. And it was just the literalness of it and how I had been taking it all of it as metaphor. Yeah. This is why I wanted to do this poem with the Jones. Something very archetypally, uh, something very archetypal about the Palestinian refugee experience in particular and preserving the. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the deeds. The deeds with the the stains on them, yeah. Because like, there's a thing that sometimes happens, and I have a, you know, I have a troubled relationship with uh, poetry of witness. I have a long essay coming about uh, out about that, and the sort of you know the stance of the poet speaking on behalf. Um, when uh, when you're sent into exile, I'll, I'll I promise to send you care packages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and send an exile. What do you mean? Because that's like a controversial thing to say. Is that what you mean? Oh, yeah. To go after the poetry of witness is a controversial thing. 
Well, I, 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 it is a, yeah, well, it could be. We'll find out. Was that the implication? I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be obtuse. Like, no, uh, no. I mean, I think, no, there is yeah. a lot of, I mean, it's a sacred cow. Let's put it like that. Poultry to this day, I didn't. Okay, I thought I didn't realize that it was still a sacred cow. I thought that. Much. Okay, gotcha. I didn't know how sacred it was, but we'll find out when it's published. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Glad to have Phil to test this out for us. Yeah, you know, and so there's a way in which you'll sort of get like, um, um, I think like a sort of uh, Carolyn Forche is one of the, the famous one of this poem, The Colonel, where there's a kind of very almost kind of generic description of this like almost archetypal colonel. Uh, who sort of like dumps out some ears on the table and says like, here's something for your poetry, right? And it kind of, um, and, and, and it's sort of like this, the cash out is the colonel using severed ears as a prop to confront the poet with their own question of purpose. And then the, you know, the ears are personified as listening. Um, and you sort of leave, it has sort of vague and troubled relationship to the underlying reality, right? In terms of, of how, you know, whereas what happens in that final image is totally the opposite, right? Like you're throughout, you're kind of demanding additional work from the reader. And instead of giving them a stable truth that you're sort of um, testifying on behalf of the words you use to talk about such things, the second they're uttered sound suspect, right? And then you give us, you know, these bits of dialogue, which are both atrocious and are also sort of comfortably fit into our categories of atrocities that we've heard of, right? Hmm. Um, followed by, is only my in rendering in English what the translator speaking in French said he said, right? And then we get that sentence, the deeds to my house are stained with blood, which as you, you know, not like at first it seems metaphorical, right? And then, but then instead of that kind of like ending the poem, uh, the concrete reality of the thing drops the bottom out from the reader right and all of a sudden you're into this consideration of the speaker's history and less the kind of symbolic weight of those blood stains than the complex experience of carrying them around sort of instead of poetry going up its own ass it goes into the concrete and um you know there's a bit from you know we we're talking earlier about how in jones like to depict reality is not to depict like a bare stripped down reductionist materialist reality because that's not actually how it's perceived and there's a wonderful bit in Ron Williams at the edge of words where he says, to try to be truthful is to try and find a way of speaking that does maximal justice to the diversity and plurality of a situation so that truthful speech is inevitably committed to the metaphor in order to represent what we could call the overflow of significance that we confront. Mm. And I love that. And I love that sort of necessity of metaphor because um, there is that overflow of significance, but Oftentimes, like poetic metaphors are reductive, right? Mm -hmm. um, or they sort of narrow us into a particular way of understanding something. And the end of that poem, um, the, the image is not, um, rather than being a kind of container, it's just sort of, um, is, a, is, 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 <laughs> is a place that demands sort of, further imaginative work from the reader, further thought from the reader, further investigation, and also a sort of keen sense of what you don't know. Where were you the first time you heard the, the poem with the severed ears, Phil? Where did you first encounter that? I think in college. Are you sure? Why? Because that was like the workshop poem that I 
was like, this poem is, I don't buy this. And it turned <laughs> yeah. into a thing in the workshop. Oh, and yeah. a decade before I had any, I, I'd never heard of oh, poetry I with this. I had never heard of poetry. Okay, so we witness. were in a veterans workshop at NYU yeah. and the instructor brought it in as like an example of a great poem. And Jake blew up the workshop because he was like, I think she's lying. <laughs> I said, I don't I don't believe that it happened. But it was something like that. And yeah. it was not a it was a divisive sentiment. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so that when that, they come for me for having problems with the poetry, yeah, witness, yeah, yeah, they yeah. should come for Jake as well. Not, not at all. Not at all. I, I, I renounce everything I ever said, if it's going to make me unpopular, whatever the people <laughs> want to hear, that's what I'm going to tell them. Oh, that's funny. I forgot yeah. about that. No, I never, listen, it's like, I mean, I, I don't want to be uh, too over the top, but it's like the poem is over, like the severed ears that are listening, blah, 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 blah. like you don't. It's a, it's a staged know. set piece. That feels, it's a staged even, set even piece. Even if it happened, it feels, it feels very. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I recall it. Um, but um, listen, I, I, I want to give you the last word, Tom, if there's anything else you want to say here. I, I wish we could talk uh, for another few hours, but um, there's got to be some kind of profound wisdom you're waiting to leave us with here. So not to put you on the spot or anything, but how can you top everything else you've said so far in the next 30 seconds? Uh, well, I won't try. Uh, Smart you know, man. Yeah. I mean, the thing, what I hope will come out of this conversation is that um, the people will, they hear us talking about Jones this kind of uh, deep enthusiasm. Uh, we've talked about him in ways that are very personal to ourselves, as well as, you know, I hope being respectful uh, to the poem as a poem and that they'll decide that, okay, I'm going to give this poem a try. You know, I'm going to experience it for myself. And like, like you discovered Jake, it's work of a certain kind. Um, it's not the kind of work that is required when you read the cantos in which basically you don't have the context to understand right. what's going on <laughs> because Pound has knowingly withheld the context. And it's not like reading, you know, The Wasteland or Four Quartets um, because, you know, in The Wasteland, uh, what you have is the appearance of, of, uh, of a... Um, kind of wide, broad sped cultural commentary when really what you've got is a very kind of, you know, interesting and strange original statement about how sex has gone bad and has really gone very bad. <laughs> it's kind of the wasteland, you know? And whereas, you know, when, when, when you, and the fact that Eliot loved, you know, in parenthesis, he called it probably, you know, one of the it, it, for him it was one of the great masterpieces of the you know of the 20th century it does not surprise me yeah, yeah. And, and but but the thing that's interesting uh, uh, about this conversation today is that you know all of us come from these really whack job different backgrounds and the fact that all of us immediately fell in love with the physicality of the poem and that's what and that's what i hope will come out of the conversation is that there'll be some way in which people will want to discover Jones on their own because, you know, even in Britain, even though he's known, he's not a popular writer. Mm. 
you know, he's, he's just not. Um, and that's okay. Uh, but, but the thing about it is, is uh, I, I really deeply appreciate, uh, you know, being on and, uh, and also the fact that we could talk about something that, you know, has meant so much to me, I think has meant a lot to Phil and now, now I, I imagine means a lot to you too. And that hopefully other people discover it for themselves, you know, uh, that's really all I have to say. Not very profound. Yeah. You were supposed to oh. say people should go out and buy the King's Touch from Great oh. Press. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Where, <laughs> where can they buy it? Sorry. I missed the moment to push the push product. But, uh, what are you going to do? You know? no, sir, I, I talked over you. So, uh, where can people okay. buy the book that's tufa. not you get, you get Amazon? A tufa. Get a Tufa. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where should people go, Tom, to buy it? Uh, Gray Wolf, Gray Wolf Press, right? That's Gray, Gray Wolf, Wolf Press. Press. Okay, yeah. and the essay we've been talking about to be incarnational, you can find on Poetry Foundation. Um, just Google Poetry, or, or don't use Google. Use DuckDuckGo and do uh, Poetry <laughs> Foundation or Brave or something. Well, you can um, also. It's also in a book of prose about. There you uh, go. Land between two rivers. Yeah. Land between two rivers. Go to a library. Gray See, I learned really yeah. quickly. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> phenomenal. Tom, thank you so much. This has been uh, fantastic. You guys, uh, you know, I, I will, I will, uh, I will remember this conversation um, uh, because I have it recorded. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. Okay. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom? I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>